Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What is up, everybody? Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Man, we got boxing this weekend, and we've got a little bit of boxing history to talk about. But also, my boy Eris Pina is here with me to talk some boxing history. I mean, dude, that's just kind of what we do. But also, as an added little bonus, Eris was just at Canastota this past weekend, International Boxing Hall of Fame. How was that, man? How are you doing? going on man um Canstota was amazing absolutely amazing it's uh, been a number of years since I've been there I want to say the last time I won was like 2017 or something um three years worth of um <clears throat> worth of classes to go in because of the pandemic and you know the world being upside down the way it was it was a beautiful time man and you know we got to see fighters get enshrined a lot of them you know very deservedly so uh, a lot of famous faces, a lot of not so famous faces, um, pioneers, legends, every every sort that you can imagine got their got their time to shine. And um, not only that, uh, I got to meet up with a lot of uh, listeners of the show. That um, was pretty awesome, and you know, chop it up with them for a bit. Guys like '80s boxing and um, and a host of others, and um, you know, it was uh, it was a good time. Yeah, I'm I'm jealous, dude. I'm yeah. I'm definitely very jealous. Jealous about just getting to hang out, dude. I think that's like a lot of the a lot of the attraction for a lot of boxing fans. We're kind of pariahs in the sports world, you know. We don't get to get together kind of quite as like a lot of like fans of other professional sports, you know. So sometimes it's I feel as though that internet and social media connection is how a lot of us fans get together and know each other. And then finally for big fights or big events, we get to hang out and it's a, it's a pretty cool it's pretty thing. Awesome, man. Yeah, man. Like and a friend of mine who, um, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, you said the three classes coming together. It's just, it was big dude. So I, I know there's a lot of people there. It was, and it, it was awesome to see, like I was uh, behind the scenes at this casting at one point. Um, and almost everybody that was getting inducted with the exception of a couple, we're basically we're getting there, we're getting enshrined. So it was it was amazing to see guys like Roy Jones and James Tony sitting there chopping it up. Um, Bud Crawford sitting uh, next to Shane Mosley and those two, you know, talking to stuff. And Crawford and Juan Manuel Larquez exchanging pleasantries. But it was also really awesome to see, you know, female pioneers who I guarantee the majority of the people at the Hall of Fame had no idea who they were, like Barbara Butrick who was very still spry and sharp in her early 90s, and um, Marianne Lady Tiger Tremier, who um, a lot of people, I'm sure, that was at the Hall of Fame had no idea who she was, but she was a female pioneer from the 70s to get women's boxing, to get them licensed and be able to fight as professionals. And, you know, she's has a leg- pretty legendary story. So to see her there... Um, Regina like, Helmick. You know, Regina Helmick, absolutely. Um, she was another one. She was extremely proud to be there. Christy Martin, 
Um, I did not see Lucia Riker, but um, I'm not sure if she made it or not. But um, uh, excuse me, Layla Ali, you know, Ann Wolf, they're all there, and it was awesome. Like that was the first time women, you know, Kathy Duva, the women's rep- um, being represented in the sport was probably the highest this this time at Canasota. Yeah, it's pretty cool uh, to uh, see all those women who were pioneers in one way or another or carried on that kind of the torch that had been already lit, uh, you know, and you get to see other pioneers in other ways, like Jackie Tonawanda recognized, you know. Oh, yeah, Jackie Tonawanda. That, that's a name that's been making the rounds lately, hasn't it, buddy? I'm saying it in a positive light. I am not. I'm saying it in a positive light. Everybody oh, else can my, talk man. Shit. Absolutely, I am too. Everybody, Everybody else can else get can... all uptight about it yep. because of whether she fought or not. And by all if, accounts, if that's what people want to focus on, if they yeah. want to spend their time focusing on that rather than focusing, like putting that energy towards something more productive, bless them. They're welcome to. I'm not gonna. I'm happy to see those those women get recognized by their National Boxing Hall of Fame. Period. Uh, it's been too long to you know totally. in in any capacity if they participated in professional boxing or the licensure uh, of women in professional in professional boxing. That's a really important step to what we've been seeing lately. I'm not going to go on too big of a rant, but, you know, Amanda Serrano and Katie Taylor just had a massive, uh, really entertaining fight that was financially successful. And also we've seen Regina Halmick. She was, uh, for years and years, a really big attraction in Germany. In Germany, absolutely. So, I mean, to see these, to see women get their recognition is long overdue, long overdue. So it's real. that was a really cool part of uh, this year, for sure. It totally was. And just just the whole camaraderie of just being around everybody at the at the place. You know what I mean? Like any bar you go to, any place late at night, you can see people wandering around, whether it's fighters or it's people, you know, like Tarver, for instance, he just came as a fan and signed getting autographs and picking up autographs and and overall just enjoying himself like that. He can tell he was like a little kid. Yeah, he was, you know? yeah, he was taking like uh like giddy selfies and stuff like he that. He looked like he was having a lot of fun. He, he loves boxing, he loves combat sports in general. He does. He does. Um, Crawford seemed to be enjoying himself. I mean, you want to see it by like, you know, his lack of smiles, but he definitely was taken in and taken in the festivities. I'm sure um, envisioning himself one day taking the podium as people were this weekend. Um, And then just for the fans, you know what I mean? Like I know boxing fans have been like guys like Lee Groves and a host of others who've been there every single year since the nineties, the early nineties, almost since the very beginning that this is their thing. This is, you know, this is our one summit that we have, you know, and unlike any other hall of fames that are out there, like the football one, baseball one, yada, whatever one you want to throw out there. This is the one where you get full on access to these guys. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't, you, there's no like giant paywall where you got to pay $500 to go be able to meet Dan Marino or whoever, somebody like that. And if you want to see, you know, Andre Ward, you're able to get a photo with him. Sure. It's he's right there. You know, you're gonna have to fight 200 other people to get it, but Hey, that's the beauty of it. It's free. You know what I mean? Um, Crawford, any of those guys, Hopkins, Roy, they, everybody was very accessible for the most part. You know what I mean? Others obviously are much more popular than more and people are going to be, it's going to be tougher to get certain people. But for the most part, that's the beauty of this place. Like you have your chance to mingle with your favorite fighters, industry insiders, whoever's going to be on the grounds. And they hold that they do these lectures where people sit up and you're able to ask these questions to people you know you can ask a question to roy jones hey what was your toughest fight whatever happened in this one that one Layla ali whoever was there you know um 
Lee Groves was up there doing trivia. They had a whole panel discussion with referees. Like they, you know, they do all kinds of things. Then the fight card that Friday, that Showbox was, you know, a lot of fun for everybody to be at. And um, heading to bars and other stuff, like I said, it's just, you know, camaraderie. You meet up with people from boxing Twitter. You're meeting up with all these other people for the first time. It's just, it's one big fun house. Yeah, man. Like I said, jealous. I will be there next year though. So we'll make up for it. And I'm happy you got to go. I have no idea who's even on the ballots for potentially to be next year, but I'm sure it's going to be good. Oh, it'll be great. I'm sure just, uh, again, the camaraderie, getting together with people, that aspect of it mm-hmm. seems awesome. But in any case, uh, I'm happy you got to go. And thanks for kind of, you know, like pretty much every year, regaling us with stories and cool anecdotes from the shit you got to do and people you got to meet. Um, but I mean, you know, we're, we are here at the end of the day to talk about some light heavyweights, dude, because this weekend at the, I think it's at the Madison Square Garden Theater, in New York, uh, which is not the same, you know, not the same thing as the big, the big room in Madison Square Garden. But nonetheless, Madison Square Garden Theater, it's going to be Artur Beterbiev against Joe Smith Jr. in a light heavyweight unification. Um, Over the years, I've definitely made a lot of beef jokes about Artur (laughs) Beterbiev. I'll stop doing it, I swear. But man, I think that what has been what's been kind of frustrating about both of these fighters i mean there i there are good things to say about both better and smith but what's been kind of frustrating is the relative inactivity for both of them um for a handful of different reasons obviously they've both kind of been sidelined by different things better specifically i think has had a few injuries that he's had to contend with um and i mean We've talked about this before. An, uh, another guy who, another fighter who has a ton of amateur experience, a long amateur, you know, a lengthy and kind of prestigious amateur record, and not a whole lot of pro fights, uh, despite the fact that he has held a world title at light heavyweight for going on five years now. Five years, which sounds crazy. That sounds, you know, amazing. But then you look at the defenses. He's only 17 and 0. Yeah, he's 17 and 0. And then you look at the defenses and they're they're kind of lacking apart from two of them. So, and then on the other side, you have Juice, Joe Smith again, who's been kind of inactive. But anyway, I don't want to focus on the negatives leading into the preview of the fight. But just for me, I think that that's part of the reason why this seems to kind of be going under the radar compared to what it should be in terms of probable entertainment. And also meeting, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, I think the, at the main thing at the end of the day is that, like, even though, like, you, with, with everything that's been mentioned, better be if, like, his inactivity, the injuries that he sustained, a lot of stuff like that. He's now looked upon, he's been looked upon for the most part. That might have changed since people just upset Canelo, but he was more looked upon as the man of the, the division, especially after he bludgeoned um, Alexander uh, Gluck. Gl- Bozdick? Yes, Bozdick. She's a silent, right? <laughs> it's something like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, do what you can. So anyway, I think but like, that was the fight right there that um, basically, for, for the most part, that kind of solidified him. Like, he went, it was a really tough fight. It was a really strong fight. Bozdick gave him a, you know, a hell of a battle early on. And it was really tightly fought. But better be it, man. The dude's strong as an ox. He just broke through, kept on beating him, beating him, sent Bozdick into retirement. So 
he, he's a brutal puncher, dude. And the way he looks, just looking really, really serious. He got that whole, you know, Khabib, Nemagra Madoff type face that you're just staring. You look kind of like, holy shit, you know, this guy will murder me in a, in a minute. Um, yeah, he's everything that you can, uh, that you want in a fighter at that division. He kind of delivers. And not only does he have a great amateur pedigree, he's been around for so long. Dude, he's just a massive puncher. Like all 17 of his wins come by knockout and they're just brutal ones, some of them. You know, he does carry one punch power in each hand, but he's also more of just a grinder too, but he's not like, he's very technical about it. Like everything yeah. is precise in the way he hurts you. For a number of years, people have been, for good reason, uh, saying, you know, the next light heavyweight showdown is going to be between Dimitri Bivol and Arthur Betterbiev. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously that's, I mean, I would say the hardcore has been saying that, you know, that's obviously not a mainstream, a fight that the mainstream is calling for, but uh, at light heavyweight, the hardcore boxing fans have, have noted that the last few years that they, at least at the time seem to be at, you know, heading for a showdown or whatever. Um, Obviously Canelo entering the light heavyweight field kind of upset that we've talked about that before the concept of a really big star, like a Floyd Mayweather Canelo, uh, being this gravitational force that when they enter a division, all of a sudden shit, you know, record scratch, <laughs> people stop and go, all right, what the fuck are they doing? Cause I need that. I want to get in on that. So whatever plans I had before that shit gets shuffled onto the back burner. Cause I want in on that. And that's pretty much what wound up happening. Uh, at least in terms of people getting that shot. Why would he not take a shot at Canelo? You know, obviously in hindsight, he whooped his ass. So it's kind of like, of course he would. But, you know, even going into that, just the the prospect of making that much money would put uh, bet, an Arthur better be a fight on the back burner. And on, and on top of that, on paper, that's a difficult fight for both fighters. For Dimitri Bivol, especially now that we've seen that, you know, he has the discipline to, to, to do that to Sal Alvarez, uh, who, you know, it's kind of remains to be seen what that meant. Was he too small for it? Was he not skilled enough? Nobody knows yet. Got to wait to see what happens when he comes back. But we now know at least Dimitri Bivol can do that. And so he answered a few questions in that fight, I think. And that still makes the prospect of an Arthur better be of a possible Arthur better be of uh, fight. Very, you know, makes me, makes me salivate anyway. I want to see it. Um, yeah. but he still he still has to get through Joe Smith because on paper, obviously Joe Smith is I don't want to put him down. I don't want to talk trash about him because he's the kind of fighter who is very he's a workman like yeah, dude, he is. He's not there's not a lot of flash to him, not a lot of uh showy ability or you know, there's not really one thing he does great except for punch. He's a very good puncher not very fast with his hands or feet, not particularly skilled, not unskilled, but not super skilled either, just kind of tough and punches hard. And so that can get you fairly far. It's just a question of how far is it going to get him against a guy like Better Biev. Um, I guess there are some questions like, you know, if Joe Smith can take Better Biev's power early on and kind of take him into the later rounds, you know, can he overcome him with toughness and power later on? I think that that's kind of a long shot, but it's a possibility. And the fact that he can punch makes it an interesting fight. So that's kind of where we are, I think, but there's some wrinkles there, you know, Smith, look, Smith, like you said, man, he doesn't do anything great, but he can punch really hard and he's gotten better over the years, especially since, um, first really coming on the scene with that, uh, massive knockout against, uh, Andre, uh, Fonfara, 
which was on like one of those PBC shows back in the day, right? I believe so. I'd ha- I'd have to look on what it was, but, but yeah. Bonfara at that point was, you know, he had beat Chavez Jr. on the first fight with Adonis Stevenson, which at work, uh, ringside in Quebec or Montreal was pretty captivating in itself. And um, sure, he got blown out in the rematch, but like he was, you know, still known as like a tough light heavyweight, like one of the top guys out there. And Joe Smith obliterated him in one round. And that's the fight that kind of catapulted him because even though he like he blasted off on Farah, Fun Farah was a bit was a big enough name that Bernard Hopkins viewed him kind of as a safe enough opponent to finish his career off with. Special. Yeah. Common. <laughs> Next thing you know, he's falling out of the ring. He's like, bro, you're like 49, Bernard. You know, and 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 that was the fight too that like sure he got that fight and we all just kind of realized look man smith is a really big puncher he's yes he looks extremely limited but hopkins what the hell are you doing is this really necessary and no it wasn't because like smith obviously even the hopkins i love say at 46 47 year old uh 47 years old probably would have won a 118 one to 10 uh 110 decision over smith right but the hopkins that was how old was he in this fight 50 51 but something ridiculous whatever yeah like i want to say 49 but it, yeah, it might have been 50 something like that all in, it was old as fuck bro <laughs> yeah and he you know performed respectively enough because smith like you said was just too limited to really take advantage of what he had in front of him early on but um once he got him over there he kind of you know clubbed him half pushed him whatever you want to call it completely just out of the ring and like you said hopkins just and that's the end of that you know what was sad too, man, is that like of all those guys from that era, from the era that we grew up in, I was always hoping that Hopkins wouldn't be the one that would get splattered. Like Roy Jones got flattened. Um, uh, Oscar got beat up after a while. Tito got tooled around. Everybody, like all those guys got whooped on at one point or another and just got taken out. And I'm like, you know what? Hopkins might just be able to get, be the guy to ride on to the sunset. And then he got flattened, completely just splattered out of the ring. I don't even remember what I picked for that fight or if I picked anything for that fight. All I know was that after a while, I just got sick of picking against Hopkins and being wrong. Yeah. I just, I mean, like the, the, the fandom arc for me for with Hopkins was I liked him in the late nineties before a lot of people knew much about him. I wasn't like a, a massive fan. I'm not going to lie, but I, I did pick him against Trinidad. Like a lot of hardcore people did and suspected and, you know, after that, I was like, all right, you know, I can get with this guy as a fan, mm-hmm. even though, yeah, I'm not like, you know, it's not super exciting, but I liked the idea of him or whatever. As soon as he started getting to a point where he was like, you know, get, getting through fights by faking fouls and just doing ridiculous stuff and not really like actually fighting, but doing the, the absolute minimum was when I was kind of like, I think I'm good. You know, I mean, it's I respect it, but I'm good. But even so, when it came to his fights, I just got sick against. I got sick of picking against him because it was like I always fucking wound up wrong. Like, damn, dude. Especially in the early in the early two thousands, man, when everybody thought, okay, this is gonna be it. Hopkins is gonna get bludgeoned in this one. Yeah, this is the limit. He can't, you know, he can't do this. And no, he did. Well, Tarver's gonna beat the hell out of him. What's he doing moving up to light heavyweight? School's Tarver. Yeah. All right, Kelly Pavlik's oh. on a tear. He's gonna fight Kelly Pavlik. He's gonna destroy Pavlik. Oh, I was sure Pavlik was gonna do him in, dude. I had so everybody. many people. Oh man. And then he just, he whooped his ass and then stared down press row. Like he wanted to kill every single motherfucker on there. That was like the coldest shit I've ever seen in my life, dude. 
Wow. And he whooped Pavlik so bad in the way he like stared him. Um, he kept on hitting him afterwards and like Pavlik's trainers, everyone running in there trying to save him, cursing up a note, real classy, real classy. Huh? Like Pavlik was never the same after that fight. No. He yeah. Like, yeah. He, he broke him. Like it was just, you know, yeah, so. I don't know. I don't want to, I don't know what to attribute that to all I know is Bernard whooped his ass bad, but you know, uh, you know, circling back though, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Hopkins later too, when we talk about the history, history stuff, but circling back to Joe Smith, you know, and, uh, better we've already seen Joe Smith, you know, uh, he, yeah, he took out Hopkins, but or as we were just talking afterwards, about, he lost to Sullivan Barrera. Yeah. As, as we saw, good. Hopkins was just so old, dude. Like he had no physical resistance to mm-hmm. Joe Smith, like, you know, and how big he was and strong he was, there was no, he couldn't do it. He couldn't, he couldn't, uh, you know, fake his way through the fight. Like, you know what I mean? He couldn't bamboozle his way through that fight. And I think, you know, in the subsequent fights that Smith has had since then, because obviously that was a high profile win for him and him being a big puncher, uh, coming from Long Island, um, the story of him, you know, being like a construction guy working and climbing in trees and doing all kinds of crazy shit. Like, he has, he has an easy story to sell, right? And so, like, you know, that fame, that photo of him wearing the WBC international title or whatever the hell it was, and he was posing, I think, after the Hopkins fight, you see him with a shovel in his hand, all, you know, that. Yeah. <laughs> Joe Smith is back to work. No, he wasn't. He was just posing. But um, he, um, you know, that's been getting, that's, he's been, like, near the upper, the, the upper echelon, uh, echelon of the division since then. Like he fought uh, the aforementioned um, Bivol soon after that. He hurt Bivol, one of the few guys that really like stung Bivol, but he also got tooled around for the entire fight. Um, he beat Jesse Hart, but Jesse Hart at that point too had already been like, you know, to a certain limit and was probably already past it. Um, same thing with Eladier Alvarez, who was a former champion, but a guy who had totally seen better days. So, you know, and like with those type of fights, you know, that's, that's just shows you where the division is right now. It's not entirely super strong. With like a lot of monsters in it, but Smith has been able, you know, like I said, being marketable with a big punch and still being consistently winning, was able to, um, you know, scoop a WBO belt out of it, albeit very controversially. But, um, yeah. you know, yeah, many felt he did not win that fight, but I think Glassoff we... was no real big world beater himself either. At that no, point. and I and I think that we've also the fights you mentioned against Sullivan Barrera and Bivol, we've seen what happens generally speaking to joe smith when he gets in there with somebody who's good mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean <laughs> i know it like Barrow was a level above guys like dimitri bivol and the other ones at the at the top of the division better beef yeah I, I don't want to you know uh I don't, I don't want to slag joe smith and i want to put him down or anything like that i'm just trying to speak plainly i think that we've already seen that he's he can be outdone outmaneuvered outquicked you know, et cetera, by a much better fighter. And we've already seen, so I, I already think, I just think that what this kind of comes down to, <laughs> we talked about this recently with uh, Vasily Lomachenko. We talked about it also recently with Dmitry Bivol. And we have to mention it for Arthur Betterbiev too, uh, interest of fairness, but also like just logically, some of these fighters who have had extremely long amateur careers and they've been fighting since they were really young kids, they literally can just get old overnight. I'm not saying it happens all the time, 
but it's unpredictable yeah. is what I'm saying. So that is among the list of possibilities. And if that does wind up happening against a guy like Joe Smith, I'm not saying Joe Smith is super good, but he's tough. He hits hard. And if he lasts long enough into the fight where better be of his legs start going or some shit like that, it could be a dangerous situation. So I mean, as I said earlier, hurt now too. what's that? I said, we have seen better be of hurt before too. He's been dropped. And it's not, it's not outside the realm of possibility. It just seems unlikely, it, but the possibilities there. And so with it being a, a light heavyweight, you know, unification bout, that's a big part of the significance there. And a big part of, uh, you know, I don't know what Canelo and Bivol are going to do. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody really does right this second, because it sounds like, you know, Canelo and Golovkin are getting it back on. And then after that, who knows? But in the meanwhile, you know, whoever wins this fight obviously should be positioning themselves to fight Dimitri Bivol. Absolutely. That's the, like you said, that's the mouthwatering matchup right there. And to be honest, I don't think it's going to be Joe Smith. Like, I think he's going to put on commendable performance. And I think it's going to be guaranteed violence. There's going to be some very violent exchanges in the fight. Like, better be if um, he loves to engage, you know, he's not an out and out waiting slugger, but if he gets in there and he smells blood or he knows he can like connect and do some damage, he's going to get in there and do it. And Smith is not the type of guy that's going to try to run away from you either. He's going to get in there and try to dig his nose in there and try to swing along with you too. So yeah, man, it's, for as long as it lasts and there's no way this fight's going to last the distance, it's, it's going to be pretty violent. Yeah. I've, you know what? Actually, let me look because I'm trying to think. Has Joe Smith lost by by knockout? Yeah, and when was that? If so, oh, okay, that was. If like so, it's probably like time ago. Fight. Yeah, it was like an earlier fight, long time ago. Because I'm trying to think, like we've seen him hurt, but I'm like, okay, I haven't seen him stopped. But well, in any case, I'm I'm not like a betting person, so I don't know what I would say. But if if I were a betting person, I'd probably mm. bet the under. I would probably bet on Arthur Betterbeev, but that's just me regardless uh i do think that it does have the potential to be a pretty good fight like you said could be some pretty good exchanges and it sounds like we're both picking better bf though i mean absolutely like i think this is the fight that he just picks up another belt on his way to the big fight that we all want to see with bevo and um if canelo dares to go back into the mix depending on what happens with him in september then you know there's another added dimension to that again because i'm sure he's going to want to try to get some get back against bevo one day and um it better be of ends up beating Bevel instead. Well, there's the other challenge. So exactly, and then I guess that's the next best thing is beating the guy who beat the guy who whooped you know whooped your ass. You know, that's the next exactly. best thing. So, either way, it's going to be some interesting times for the light heavyweight division. And sometimes you know light heavyweight division is one of those divisions that kind of get kind of mundane and boring. You know, it's not a lot going on in it. So um, right now it's getting interesting. Good times ahead. Yeah, you know, we're that that's a good segue for the history portion of the show for sure. Because oh. historically, light heavyweight is like it used to be like cruiserweight. It was, or at least it, it used to be thought of kind of like cruiserweight is now. Um, obviously, recent years it's been a little different. Cruiserweight has heated up at a couple different times with different unifications and stuff like that. It's been fun. We actually did an entire cruiserweight show, which was a lot of fun. But but uh in years past the light heavyweight division was just seen as the stepping stone to heavyweight as cruiserweight is now so um you know you you going way back to the beginning basically uh the earlier years of the light heavyweight division were considered yeah kind of not 
yeah, I guess mundane is a pretty good word for it. Mundane is a very good word for it. Even though there were some fighters like Bob Fitzsimmons who were early light heavyweight champions, they weren't generally there for very long or they sought to be champions at heavyweight otherwise. So, you know, there's the highlight of his career when he, when he won that, when he won that belt. Yeah. And there's actually, I don't want to say controversy, but there is kind of a, a slight asterisk, uh, on it on that title because some historians feel as though the title was more or less fabricated in order to make bob fitzsimmons a three division champion because Mm -hmm. he was a very popular boxing celebrity at the time i think that might be a stretch but regardless you know uh it, it it is kind of an interesting debate but going forward um we actually don't see a whole lot of light heavyweight unification, which in, in a way is good in a way is, you know, going to make for a fairly short history show here, but in a way it's good because that means there, there wasn't nearly as much uh, bickering back and forth between then the national boxing association and the New York state athletic commission, which for the, the vast majority of this time that we're talking about from about 19 teens up until the 1960s were the two main entities that were controlling uh, championships, at least in this division In a couple other divisions, it got a little more complicated, but at least at light heavyweight, those were the two main factions. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple times where dudes were stripped or whatever, but for the most part, it stayed pretty steady. It stayed pretty solid. But I think for the most part as well, too, is that like, like you mentioned, a lot of, especially in the early days, um, after, this is after Fitzsimmons, light heavyweight division is always like looked upon as like a springboard to the heavyweight division, you know? Like no one really wanted to be there and be the dominant light heavyweight champion. Sure, that added a little bit of praise to you, but that was still kind of looked upon as more secondary as the, you know, to the big boys. So you had guys like, um, you know, soon after that, like Jack Dillon, who's, considered you know borderline all-time great or whatever but like how many people really remember him today? yeah but a footnote otherwise yeah totally you know battling and even back when he was champion no one was clamoring to saying hey we need to see jack dylan against jack dempsey like everybody kind of knew their place you know uh battling levinsky um <clears throat> george's capanchier who probably made the biggest impact in trying to challenge dempsey but um battling seeky um mike mcteague like all these guys that you're going on with like they were all you know, they more or less were like more interested in trying to like either get a claim at heavyweight. McTeague was more around like light heavyweight, find a middleweight, light heavyweight, but like no one was just really staying and like trying to be like the dominant guy there. That's actually, that's a really good call there with Georges Carpentier because he was an absolute superstar in France. He was a, a war hero from World War One. I. I believe he was a pilot. I'm not positive about that part, but I know he was a war hero. And I'm, you know what, I'm almost, I am pretty sure he was a pilot because he did have, uh, they were talking about like the confirmed kills he had made and stuff like that as a pilot in World War One, And in any case, he was a celebrity and he was uh, also looked at as somebody who was like, um, like a mini Jack Dempsey in the sense that, you know, he's a good looking guy. He was a, a, a manly guy. He was, he was a guy the ladies wanted and the guys wanted to be like type of thing. And so then it seemed like a natural with him being the European light heavyweight champion and then the light heavyweight champion, it seemed like a natural to match him against the heavyweight champion because, you know, that's just kind of a tale as old as time, you know, going back a long way, 
whoever was like the middleweight or light, light heavyweight champion frequently would move up to try to challenge the heavyweight champion. And as soon Perfect. as George Carpentier did that, he got absolutely smushed. So, I mean, <laughs> it, it was like, you know, that was the, that was the signal that it was, <laughs> you know, it was, the size difference was too great. He just got manhandled. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. He just, it was not, I mean, it was an incredibly historic bout, but it was, it was. not competitive. It was the first one ever, um, I think, you know, broadcast on radio, the first car broadcast on radio and um, uh, just first million dollar gate in boxing history, like everything, you know what I mean? Like they, uh, they built Boyle's 30 acres. They, they built that stadium specifically for that fight. Like it's, it's very historical. And you know, the whole thing of Compagnier being the French war hero coming to fight Dempsey, who was looked upon as like the American slacker. And a lot of just so many different things. Yep, that's right. Yeah. I left that part out. That's a good call. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of things going on with it. I mean, that was a really, really historic fight. But like you said, the actual fight itself was just Dempsey squashing him. Yeah. It's uh, it did not, it was not competitive. And I think that that was seen as a signal that like heavyweights are heavyweights and light heavyweights are light heavyweights and never the twain shall mix. It wasn't even a real light heavyweight. The guy came from flyweight. Yeah, he had defeated a whole number like Ted Kid Lewis. Like he defeated yeah. a whole number like much smaller fight fighters in his. Uh, yeah, he wasn't a super big guy either. So I mean, it 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 didn't make sense. But so going forward, like I said, and kind of talking about light heavyweight unifications, which is what we were talking about a moment ago, uh, a big part of the reason why that even came about was just to kind of briefly go into it. So. In the 1960s, that's when boxing made the transition from the, the National Boxing Association, more mm -hmm. or less disbanded and became the World Boxing Association, the WBA. And then shortly thereafter, that was in 1962. And then the following year, 1963, the WBC was formed, uh, the World Boxing Council, which was basically as a response to the WBA being formed because there had for many, many years been this push and pull between various organizations in boxing. Like the NBA would say one thing, the New York state athletic commission would say another thing, like one entity would have one champion. Another entity would have another champion. Often they unified or were the same, but you know, fighters would get stripped for various things. And so that's often why I say things like when people make comments like back back when there were one champion per division and eight divisions i'm like dude that's such a short window it just all it, that's such a short window that he, that that even happened and even when there was there was controversy amongst the amongst the states and who they wanted 100 like, percent so and and it's like there's too many variables in there too because junior divisions have been at least recognized since the late 19 teens so it's kind of like you know chill but regardless uh you know this split though or this kind of power struggle between two different entities the alphabet organizations in the early 1960s this came about where the wba and the wbc were born um and they started kind of somewhat quickly in the late 1960s having disputes as far as who the champions were and started more quickly stripping champions and moving pieces around you know probably for financial reasons, blah, blah, blah. But one of the big first, you know, light heavyweight unifications then came from a guy that we've talked about before in Bob Foster, because he was an absolute blistering puncher. Uh, but also this was one of the big reasons why he was such a bitter guy throughout his career, 
because he had to make this unification. He had captured the light heavyweight title from Dick Tiger at Madison Square Garden in 1968, I think, maybe 69. 68. Um, and he, I mean, just absolutely brutal knockout, terrible knockout, the kind of knockout that you watch and you're just like, ugh, I don't know how many times I need to see that. And uh, he, in any, in any case, that was the light heavyweight championship but then when he moved up to, to face Joe Frazier quite admirably and got absolutely conked himself, uh, the WBA, like a bunch of dicks, stripped him and, uh, you know, more or less awarded the championship to Vicente Rondon, who was a Venezuelan. And then on top of that, the WBA had decided to set up shop in South America. So it was this big really icky looking situation then bob foster was pissed because when he came back down from getting his ass kicked at heavyweight and there's an entire story about that too where you know he got bludgeoned by joe frazier and then taken back to the dressing room and is sitting there putting on his stuff and his whole team's going what the fuck are you doing and he's like i'm going getting ready to fight and they're like bro you just got knocked out and he's like what do you mean and like that this big conversation about him just getting knocked out and not remembering and then folded like a piece of paper. Oh, just yeah. awful, like backwards too. And he goes back down to light heavyweight and has to recapture the WBA title from Vicente Rondon. And you can see every bit of that anger in that fight, dude. He abs he nearly decapitates Rondon. Like it's it's terrible, awful, awesome, but terrible and awful at the same time. And so that's one of the first big light heavyweight unification fights. And again, one of the reasons why Bob Foster was just bitter toward the establishment for much of his career after that dude foster was always carried a chip on his shoulder one of those guys that just you can almost call him like a more mellow slightly less like crazy charlo brother right if you really want to think about it like you know the charlos definitely have a chip on their shoulder and they go out but they are very expressive and how they just want to you know animate and everything like that foster wasn't quite as animated but you just knew he didn't really like anybody either. he was very you know, very, he was, he was yeah, like very, very brooding, very surly guy who just kind of went about a business and wanted to take you out of there. He wasn't trying to make you go the distance. He didn't want to go to distance. He wanted to take you on. He wanted to assume his dominance. He wanted to show that he was the man of his division. One of the few light heavyweights that want, that didn't mind staying. Oh, like, he did have excursions at heavyweight, but he was one of the few guys at the light heavyweight division that really made his home there and dominated it like completely. And like you said, Run Dunn, who not a bad fighter himself. Uh, you know, tough, and he, you know, the guy he beat for the vacant belt, Jimmy the Cat Dupree, was a longtime contender, and he, Rondon, uh, Rodon was a good fighter, but Foster was not about to have that. There was a guy over here that's being called champion while he's while he feels himself to be undisputed, and how dare this guy, how dare Vicente come in there and try to take this mantle and call himself champion too? Like, not only is Foster surly, now he's extremely pissed off about all of this because, like you just said, he has to deal with that and this guy calling himself champion when he's been undisputed for so long. Like, are you serious? So to go there, assume his dominance, like you said, two rounds is all it took. Foster wasn't the guy that tried to like prolong a fight as much as he had to anyways. If he had, if he can get you out quickly, he would. And it's just a combination. And you see, I think it's the final left hook that Rondon's just decapitated and ruined. His fight, his career was ruined after that. And, and on top of that, there were a lot of kind of writers and pundits who were saying, you know, Vicente Rondon, he's also got a uh, kind of similar, similar build 
to Bob Foster. He's gangly. He's got range. Like this might be a tough fight for Foster. And Foster right. came in and just beat the shit out of him. And, you know, that final sequence, he gets him on the ropes and Rondon gets like caught kind of on the ropes with his side to the ropes. And he turns to the side and like, he's like totally defenseless, 100%. And Foster just drills him, just drills him. And he just falls like limp. Like eh. there's some, <laughs> that's what he eh. That's what he did. There's so many dudes like, like Julian Jackson, like how he used to slump fools. Same thing. Bob Foster did the exact same shit to a handful of really good fighters, you know, and just this was one of them. And if you look at his record afterwards, bro, completely, he was ruined after that fight. Just became an absolute stepping stone for everybody from, Lon, from Ron Lyle to Ernie Shavers, all the way to Joe King Roman. You know, the guy that Foreman absolutely yeah. almost killed in Tokyo. Um, yeah, hit him like three times while he was down. Yeah. 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 Oh, one of the worst, so one of the worst heavyweight massacres in boxing history um just that's what he became and that was all because of bob foster and there was never another unification for bob foster after that because there didn't need to be you know bob foster once again assumed his dominance showed that he was the man and soon enough tried to make it you know tried to go back to heavyweight after that which ended disastrously against muhammad ali but you know foster showed that he's arguably maybe the great by some people he's considered the greatest light heavyweight of all time Yep, that's true. A, a lot of people do. Well, he should be ranked high no matter what. But some people do yeah. consider him the the greatest light heavyweight of all time because of his dominance. And like you said, we've talked about like with Hopkins, Hagler, staying at one weight, you know, and just kind of cleaning out the division. And Foster is a dude who did that. I'm not sure if Foster actually officially lost that light heavyweight either. Like I know he lost the decision to Mauro Mina. That wasn't that. Um, that was kind of like in between or something like that. I'm not sure what they weighed at, but. Foster, for the most part, might have been undefeated at light heavyweight. And I don't really count his comeback either. Like, you know, his fight with Mustafa Wazaja, mm -hmm. um, the light heavyweight that ended up challenging Michael Spinks eventually. I'm not sure. You know, that's, that's post-career. That's like 1978, 79. Foster had no business back then. No, he's in. But either way, you know, definitely one of the greatest light heavyweights of all time. Bar yeah, none. And, and, dude, he was salty even post-career, all right? When Virgil Hill came on the scene, and broke his record for title defenses, even though it wasn't consecutive. Um, Foster was none too happy about it. <laughs> and anytime, I, I never witnessed this, but I would read about it in magazines. Anytime he was at the Hall of Fame, he made a very apparent that he did not like Virgil Hill, would pick up a photo and rip it in half, which was, I think, a little, you know, over the top, and just go on and on and on about rants about that. He, that dude, side-eyed to death. Until his death, that guy was just the most yeah yeah like he, like he was he was friendly enough when he met me but i think i was a little punk kid and obviously i had nothing to do i was just getting an autograph so he smiled kind of briefly but probably still thinking too many fucking kids <laughs> yeah well and like i said dude hopefully i explained enough to to justify the bitterness because that's fucked up you know the oh, wba totally i think the wba did it because at the time they were uh excuse me, like a somewhat newer organization and some of the, the rules that they were coming up with in the first like decade or so of their existence, WBA and WBC were dumb. And WBA was, had this rule at the time was where uh, you couldn't be recognized or ranked in two divisions at the same time. And so if you mm -hmm. moved and, and uh, uh, got another title, they would strip you immediately in the other division. Even if you, even if you were making it explicit that you were going back to that division, and so that's what wound up happening. And I think Bob, 
you know, Bob Foster just felt like, you know, why, like you guys would make an exception for somebody else. Why not me? You know, fuck you guys. And so he made totally. it a point after the Rondon fight to be like, you know, this was not just a win for me, but like, this was a win against the boxing establishment. You know, I feel as though I won or whatever. So that's why he was bitter for so long, or at least a part of it. And, and on top of that, also fighting in the shadow of just bigger fighters who whooped him up when he moved to heavyweight, unfortunately. That's what I was about to ask. That's what, that's what I was about to say, man. Isn't it really kind of fascinating? A guy that was so dominant in his division, the way Foster was, like just no one could even touch, man. Just poleaxing guys left and right. Or if they if they they somehow lasted into the late rounds, they were just beaten and bludgeoned and beat up and stopped. Guys like Mark Tessiman and, you know, Chris Finnegan, and stuff like that. But like, think of when he moves up right when he moves up to heavyweight he how fragile he looks compared to like how he was it's 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 interesting a guy so dominant in his division he moves up and like he gets knocked down seven times against ali he gets poleaxed against frazier um any other time that you know early on his career when he moved up he had disastrous results you know zora foley doug jones like stuff like that so it's kind of like it, it's really interesting you know foster definitely definitely would have benefited for the cruiserweight division around there not to say he would have taken it but that whole gap from 175 moving up to the small guys, like even though he had a really long frame, he was so thin and frail compared to the actual heavyweights. Even guys like Ali, who just were more filled out than he was, just couldn't handle it. Yeah, dude, he just, I guess, I don't know if it was just, uh, you know, he didn't have the frame for it. He didn't have the chin for it. I don't know what it was, but it was just one of those situations where it illustrated that's why we have divisions. <laughs> That's why we have weight classes. That's why they matter, you know? So it ain't just some, you know, it ain't a Kumite, bro. It ain't the motherfucking Kumite. But that's not to say that, like, I mean, look, he was trying to move up and challenge in the greatest era of boxing history, you know? So that's not to say that, like, if yeah. he came around in a different time, that you wouldn't Yeah, you want to talk about he took a chance. You know, you, you want to talk about he dared to be great. He did. And well, two of the greatest of all time. Just couldn't. You know what I mean, totally. Yeah, just couldn't you know, is what it is. But, um, you know, other light heavyweight unifications, you actually saw this past weekend. Yeah. One of the unif unifying. Fellows. I was going to bring that up. Totally. Um, a guy who, uh, I'm close with his sister-in-law, um, Michael Spinks, you know, Michael Spinks, uh, obviously what, I mean, you know, you talk about like the greatest light heavyweights of all time, Spinks is going to be up there too. I think that it's his resume is not nearly as thick as some other the great light heavyweights, but you know, you got obviously Spinks, Bob Foster, Ezra Charles is going to be underrated, very underrated in the in the discussion. Mm -hmm. But you know, Spinks is definitely gonna be up there. Spinks is top five, or if not like even top three, arguably. Um Regardless, like you said, man, he didn't have a long career. You know, he especially early on, he had a couple of injuries, and also too, he was trying to he was trying to take care of his brother Leon. Um, Leon led, who obviously hot shot much quicker than than Michael did, um, to a championship was going absolutely wild, especially post second Ali fight. Um, had a lot of going ons and everything like that. Michael actually had to take time off from his career to try to manage Leon and try to settle him down and make sure the dude just didn't actually implode or kill himself or something crazy, you know? So there, there was, but the talent was there. People knew that, but his career was just kind of stagnant early on, especially considering he was a gold medalist from one of the most prestigious teams in boxing history, you know? Um, Leon was already hot shotted. Sugar Ray Leonard was featured on TV plenty of times. Howie Davis Jr., John Tate. Like these guys were already known commodities on television. Spinks 
who was televised a few times at this point and was still undefeated was, you know, still struggling to really break through. Like you said, I think that a lot of it had to do with the fact that Leon was far more, I mean, I don't even know that charisma was the right word for it. He was just such a goofball and such a, you know, but he was in the, in the American press. He was easy. Like the, all of his exactly. outside ring hijinks and what was been seeing the photos of him at studio exactly. 54 and the cowboy hats and all and, of stuff. And Michael was just far more soft-spoken, you know, he yeah. was just far more understated. And I mean, and I don't think it had anything to do with him being a lesser fighter, but also on top of that, to be fair, I think that Leon uh, was a more aggressive, a harder puncher, and just kind of like, you know, I think that was also an extra attraction too. Uh, mm-hmm. Michael was far more technical and far more. And uh, I've mentioned this every time we bring up the Sphinx brothers, I got to, I got to name drop it because it's probably the best source for more in-depth uh, information on the Sphinx brothers and condensed. Uh, but I, you know, I got it up on the shelf here. Um, uh, One punch from the promised land is a, yeah, it, really good book about the Sphinx brothers. And one of the things that it talks about is that Michael Sphinx, when he was young, he specifically like did not like boxing, hated boxing, did not want to get back into the ring, but basically was, you know, talked back into it and also was there with Leon. And so, you know, had said like more than once, you know, I don't like getting hit. I don't want to hit people. Like, that's not what I want to do, but it's just kind of uh you know, they grew up in a really, really awful part of St. Louis uh, in a in a famous housing project, and it was that was their way out. That was their way to get the fuck out of their situation. Uh, and so, brothers from an awful part of uh, awful part of the country, really, um, you know, rising to both one of the absolute toughest parts, man. Yeah, just pre-war oh, eagle projects in St. Louis where they came up from, and like legendary. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's been featured on many documentaries and many television shows, like on A and E, like Gangland and other stuff like that. Well, very, and not to talk like stuff. some fucking weird middle aged white guy, but you know, Kansas City it does have a the, the crime rate in Kansas City has remained high for a long time. It's the place where you don't really want to fuck around. So you know, it's and it wasn't then either. So being to being able to uh make their way out of this place was really important and boxing was that ticket it's that stereotypical thing you know it's the story we've seen countless times and they did make it happen as brothers olympians gold medalists and then future world champions both heavyweight champions really i mean that's massive yeah yeah it's pretty awesome but well, like you said, man, you know, Spinks, it, it took him a little while because in the late 70s, we're talking 1978 to 1979 at this point, Spinks was, he, again, he was out there trying to take care of Leon. He had to put his career on hold. But when he finally started making moves in 1980, that's when his career really started like taking off, so to speak. Um, he started beating guys like Murray Sutherland. Um, he beat a guy by the name of uh, Roman, Ramon Ranquillo, who... If you're not familiar with that name, he was a tough Mexican um, light heavyweight journeyman who upset Mike Rosman, who was recently at that point a, light, a po- very popular light heavyweight champion. So Ranquillo was a tough guy, and Spinks kind of thrashed him. He beat Murray Sutherland soon after that, and then soon soon after, after a couple of more wins, he Yaki Lopez was another big name. Um, <clears throat> he was able to fight Eddie Mustafa Muhammad. Um, known as mostly today as like, you know, a top trainer, but back in the day, he was one of the dominant light heavyweight champions, longtime contender, um, finally was able to win the championship. A guy who, in my opinion, 
I think um, if he really was really just let himself like open up and just really use his full set of skills, he could have been one of the greatest light heavyweights ever. But he always seemed like he was something was just off with him that he held back slightly to really realize his full potential. Regardless, he was a badass champion with a lot of experience at that point. And Spinks, it was a tough fight early on. Spinks was starting off slow. Mustafa Muhammad was giving it to him. But Spinks eventually caught him with a shot that closed um, Mustafa Muhammad's eye really badly. And Spinks dominated to, to win a dominant decision. So from there, um, you know, the sky was the limit with him. Yeah, dude, that uh, that's a, a a big fight for him to win his first light heavyweight championship. And then on top of that, the potential rematch had a <laughs> has a funny footnote in history, too. Oh, yeah, that goes. But before I get to that, I almost forgot to mention dude, uh, one thing that really brought him a lot of acclaim and like, holy shit, people took notice was a knockout of Marvin Johnson. An underrated light heavyweight, for sure. Yeah, and totally. and a definitely light heavyweight champion, guy that gave everybody hell, was giving Spinks hell up until that point for one punch, just one single upper, uh, I think it was a left uppercut he landed, bah! and unconscious, clean, smooth, just smoked. And Marvin Johnson, despite being underrated, did kind of look like a side character in a boxing video game, you know, with all due respect, because he was always like prematurely balding. I mean, I mean, guilty as charged. Especially at but... that point, because like, he, you know, he had the all the hair growing on the side still kind of like picked out and everything and completely bald in front. Yeah, he's looking like a monk. Bro, just, just let it go. Just let it go. Yeah, like he's looking like a monk or something, you know, <laughs> but an underrated fighter for sure. And a good win, uh, needless to say, for Michael Spinks. But as far as the uh, Eddie Mustafa Muhammad rematch, so they they were going to rematch. And that was the infamous fight where Eddie Mustafa Muhammad misses weight. And, you know, they had gone through, they had spent a shitload of money on the promotion for this fight. And on the day that Eddie Mustafa Muhammad misses weight, Burt Sugar you know, claims that he went and he bought, I think it was a five pound bag of sugar, a five pound bag of flour and placed it on the scale and it read wrong. And that became this big controversy because they were saying people were fucking with the scale because the, yeah. at the time it was supposed to be in, I think, Washington, DC. And at the time, the commissioner of Washington, DC was the then wife of Marion Barry. Okay. You know, Washington, D.C. Mayor Marion Barry, who famously was, you know, buying crack and smoking crack and shit like that. Anyway, so it was a big controversy. It was a big thing. Um, and it wound up not happening. And actually, uh, uh, the botched Spinks Eddie Mustafa Muhammad rematch combined with Ray Mancini versus Duku Kim. I mean, obviously one far more than the other, but both of them combined to uh, make for new regulations in boxing and up for a whole bunch of things. And that was actually one of the main reasons why they switched from day of weigh-ins to day before weigh-ins, because that was the day of that Eddie Mustafa Muhammad missed weight and it fucked it up. It Spinks was, decided was, to not go through with it. And that fight was, um, was supposed to be uh, televised by HBO. And so it was a big money loss. And that was a big reason why they were like, all right, we're doing way in the day before now. And it took a while to catch on. But and Mustafa after... Muhammad's career never recovered from that either, from that fiasco. He never, no. I think he had a title shot once for the uh, vacant title against Slobin and Kakar, which he ended up probably his name up too, who cares, um, which he lost. And that was basically it. Yeah, he, uh, well, he was really unrepentant 
about missing weight. Like he, they yeah. asked him and he was like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Oh, well. Sure. And so <laughs> after that, they were just like, Oh, you don't give a fuck. Okay. And so they pretty much like, I don't want to say they blackballed him, but he lost a lot of opportunities after that. Wow. But in any case, you know, that, I just, I thought that that was hilarious. The whole, you know, Burt Sugar. I mean, if that happened today during boxing Twitter, like in the age of Twitter and what's going on, can you only imagine? I mean, it kind of has like, oh, well, not quite like that, but it kind of has a, a couple times. Uh, well, Twitter wasn't quite around, but remember um, uh, Castillo Corrales 3. Oh, yes, totally. Remember that shit? When I had friends that went to Vegas. When he passed on on stage, right? Yeah, I had friends who went to Vegas for that shit. And they were fucking, they were pissed because obviously sure. they showed up for the fight and it didn't happen. They were like, what the fuck? Totally, totally. But anyway, yeah. So I just thought that the, uh, that was a funny footnote, but moving forward, you know, uh, it wasn't until he met Dwight Muhammad Kawi in 1983 that they unified that title, the WBA and WBC. Cause like I'd said, this was kind of in the aftermath of these, the WBA and WBC kind of messing around with their, their championships and like being reluctant to rank each other's fighters and stuff like that. It was, you know, it was a mess. It's been a mess ever since really, but regardless of the mess Spinks and Dwight Muhammad Kawi got together and these victories and these opponents are a big reason why Michael Spinks is considered one of the greatest light heavyweight of all time. No question. Well, you know, you got to think about it too. This was a huge fight at this point for unification. A lot of people were looking forward to it. Dwight Muhammad Kawi was the complete opposite of how Michael Spinks came up. Um, they, they both came up from similar backgrounds. Don't, don't, that's not what I meant by that. Spinks came from the projects in St. Louis. Cowie came through the slums in New Jersey. Um, same actually, you know, um, came up in Rawway State Prison, same place that James Scott came up in. And Cowie first originally learned how to box in prison, as a lot of guys, as a lot of fighters have at one point or another. Who we'll mentioned that? There's always some prisoner in there, somebody that's, you know, kind of resembles that Ving Grimes character. And I forgot the name of that movie he was in. Um, you know, was, talking that, about? was that play it to the bone? No, 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 no. That was that wasn't play it to the bone because that was uh, Antonio Banderas, I think. I um, just know that right around that time there were a handful of like pseudo boxing movies that came out. I think was, like, was the one I think so bad. Like Wesley Snipes or something in the in the um, in a big cage or whatever <laughs> it was as a and he was a prisoner. I, oh no, no, no. Ving Rams was the heavyweight champion. Wesley Snipes was the guy that was in jail. Vice versa. Anyways, um, he came up the hard way. You know what I mean. And as he turned pro, he did it with little no fanfare, but, you know, he was able to still like kind of break through a little bit. Cowie, you know, he struggled at first, but he had a type of style, man, that was like hard to decipher. He was very, very short for the division, about my height, five six, five uh, about five seven. But he was very thick, stocky. And his pressuring style was like, in the way he would um, protect himself, he fought in this weird shell where it was really hard to hit him. He like the way he would duck and slip a lot, but like kind of like Frazier, but like more in a, in a, in a more like, um, I don't know, stylistic way. Like he was really good about it. You know what I mean? It was really hard to hit him clean. Not only was he, he had his hands up there and like, you're, he's, you're short, he's shorter than you. So you have to punch down at him. Um, the way he would dip and duck and stuff like that through it. And he would count you every time you do that, he was able to out jab you. And it's hard to like, you're freaking out wondering how a guy that's small is able to out jab you. And not only is he able to out jab you, he's, he's countering you. Every time most people would throw a right hand at it, it would go slipping under him because of the style he had. And then you would come up pop, pop, pop. and the way he had this giant mouthpiece. So it always looked like he was smiling. And sometimes he was while he was beating you up. He enjoyed giving people, he enjoyed pummeling guys. And 
you know, his first big win that really like people were just like, okay, took notice of him was against the aforementioned um, Mike Rossman. And when he fought Rossman, you know, that fight was televised. And that was Kawhi's first time on the big, in the, on the national stage like that. And Kawhi just beat the shit out of him, man. It was a massacre. Rossman at this point had seen much better days, but he was, you know, still considered a guy with a name. And Kawhi just brutalized him. And you'll see the mouthpiece there. You see him smiling. You see Rossman throwing right hand after right hand because he doesn't know what to do. Kawhi just slipping, slipping, slipping. Sitting there smiling. Gets him and finally ruins And Rossman just looks there and he looks absolutely bushwhack laying in the corner just splay out. Like he he got whooped. And then Kawhi's very next fight, he goes and he fights James um, James Scott in Rahway State Prison. Goes back there. Scott, by this point, had lost to Jerry the Bull Martin, but he was still considered a big name, um, still considered a top contender, and still obviously had an incredible story. Um, Cowie wasn't as dominant in this fight. It was a much closer, it was a much closer fight, but he he came away with a deserved decision. At that point, it was all systems a go for him, you know. And right after that, that's when he challenged Matthew Saad Muhammad. And Matthew Saad Muhammad, who we've discussed plenty of times on the show, arguably the greatest action fighter in history. Um, longtime champion, extremely popular, future Hall of Famer. But everybody's wondering when's the when's then going to be that war that's going to be too much for him, you know? Because he had been through incredible wars at that point. Not only with like guys with Marvin Johnson and Yaki Lopez, but dudes like uh, all the way from Murray Sutherland to Vonzel Johnson were putting hands on him and beating him up. So he was he was getting it worse and worse. You know what I mean? Every time you see him, his face, every time he was getting more damaged. It looked like he'd be breaking down, and this was his breaking point. Um, Cowie beat the hell out of him, you know. He really whooped on him. It looked like kind of sadistic in the way he was pummeling him. And as whenever Saad Muhammad tried to come back, Cowie beat him even worse. But it wasn't, you know, ended up stopped. He ended up losing. Um, they ended up having a rematch soon after that, and same thing happened, even worse this time. Like Saad was talking a lot before that fight. Oh, I wasn't this. I wasn't that. You know, all these other things. Cowie was getting really pissed off about that because you know he's already a guy that had to come up the hard way he's kind of salty um Spinks is obviously a guy with more publicity and he he needs to you know really show himself that he's elite and what does he do I mean he brutalized him this fight was on HBO and our boy Jay Seklow uploaded a really clean copy of it recently but um dude it was bad he he ruined Saad and finished him off as any type of top fighter at all and soon enough that was when they led to the unification fight and a lot of people were really excited because you were looking at Cowie as like the rampaging bulldog that can't really be stopped. And Spinks, the classic boxer, but the person that also has like, you know, extreme power in his hands. And you were thinking, you know, there's, there's a lot of like layers here that can be a classic fight. Not so much though. Yeah, dude. It, uh, I think that it was just Cowie separated himself from Saad Muhammad, who mm incredible action fighter and probably underrated in terms of <laughs> skills, but just was not quite on the level of a Kawhi. But then Michael Spink separated himself from Kawhi and Eddie Mustafa Muhammad. And then ultimately everybody else in the division too. Okay. You know, he, he fought off Kawhi who did his damnedest, but just he's Michael Spink stayed disciplined. That was his game. You know, he stayed uh, with a really good jab, good movement. That's how he was supposed to do it. And Eddie, and Eddie Fletch was his trainer for that fight. He told him, you know, make sure don't throw your right hand too much because that was Cowie's bread and butter of slipping it. So jab, jab, jab. 
and he had really good movement and was sharp, you know, just kind of a, a guy who was not exaggerated when he was disciplined. And that's how he wound up pulling that out. He wound up making four more defenses of the light heavyweight, the unified light heavyweight title at that point before moving up and very controversially defeating Larry Holmes for the heavyweight title. Yep. <laughs> and as I, as I had a note too, um, something that happened during, before the fight that Eddie Fudge thought, Oh my God, this ruins everything. Michael Spinks had lost his wife soon before that fight in a car accident. And right before the fight, they're in the dressing room. Someone brought in Spinks, young daughter uh, to go meet him. And Spinks, I guess, apparently broke down really badly, you know, like hugging her and everything. And Butch, who obviously is trying to get his man ready for the biggest fight of his career, sees this and he's just like, you know, but Spinks, to his credit, was able to hold it together. And like you said, it was a very disciplined performance. Not a very exciting fight, but a fight that, like, he was able to solve. Like, no one was able to solve Cowie at that point. Cowie had suffered a loss earlier in his career, but his style was so peculiar and tough that he was kind of just ramrodding everyone that Spinks showed the blueprint to it because Cowie said so as much. In other subsequent fights, Cowie said, yeah, after what Spinks did to me, everyone else tried to fight the same way, and I had to adjust from there, and yada, yada, yada. So... You know, it was interesting, but Spinks, he, he showed himself because you know what, as a light heavyweight, what I loved about Spinks was that like, he knew if he can bomb you out of there, he totally would. Like if he had you hurt, he was that he was a very vicious finisher, even though he was kind of low key and he had the power to do it. You know, the Spinks jinx right hand, that was legendary and he had power in his left. But like you mentioned with the Holmes fight and other ones, if a guy was like really big and he had to adjust, he didn't mind fighting ugly. You know, the way he would kind of like awkwardly jab in there, throw a overhand right, clinch up, way, dance around. Like if he had to make it ugly as long as he won, you know, what George Benton said, win this one, look at, look at the next one. Exactly. Yep. And well, and that's, that was a, that was his philosophy and it worked and it led totally. to him being one of the greatest light heavyweights ever for sure. Um, and and actually, that was an incredible era. That was basically the culmination of that light heavyweight ever from the late seventies up into that point. Yeah, they had all beaten the crap out of each other for from the late 70s into the mid 80s. And then finally, Michael Spinks, you know, came out on top like that's And then they all go away. And guess who appears again? Marvin Johnson. <laughs> yeah, dude, Marvin Johnson. Hey, it's me again. He comes out of nowhere for, for a cup of coffee one more time in the mid 80s, yeah, calling dude. himself Pops, even though he was like 31. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah a he was an old 31 at that point to, yes to, for sure he had he did a little shop worn but yeah that marvin johnson dude definitely he comes out of nowhere again it's me again <laughs> like, really because he knew at that point marvin's like you know what? i'm gonna lay low for a bit let these guys knock each other out. i'm gonna appear like yep. <laughs> then i'll appear up, up see what i could do yeah yeah i know those the next generation ain't gonna be as tough as these guys <laughs> well that's what they say and actually, the another guy who did some unifications, or at least the, the next kind of string of unifications, was another guy who was there this past weekend at Canastota. That's Roy Jones. You know, um, I mean, it, the so it gets a, it gets a little funky, it gets a teeny bit funky here. And this is something that like not a lot of people talk about, probably because it gets funky. But well, well before that one, wasn't there? Wouldn't you? Um... The way, would you consider Virgil Hill Mikocheski unification? Well, that's what I was going to say. Oh, okay, okay. And that's okay. and that's a big part of the reason why this got funky. Okay. Because so, 
Darius Mikulczewski wins the WBO title, which we, we've talked about a number of times recently about how the WBO kind of rose to prominence, but it was kind of like, eh, we don't know. Mm-hmm. And then it was often for a number of years considered a European organization. It wasn't like mainstream. And like we talk about the four belt era now. I mean, there that was not a thing at the time. So um, the WBO title was recognized, but if you wanted to be undisputed or if you wanted to unify, it got kind of murky from there. So, but that being said, uh, Darius Mikulczewski winds up defeating Virgil Hill in 1997 and unifying the WBO and WBA title. But then the, he drops the WBA title. And uh, basically that gets funky because between Roy Jones, Graciano Rochigiani, uh, and then on top of that, Roy Jones losing to Montel Griffin the, uh, the first time, it's just like, it got it got ugly dude it got ugly all around here so technically speaking if you want to get really technical about it and piss a whole bunch of people off at the same time you say that Darius Mikulczewski was technically the lineal light heavyweight champion and that despite all the unifying Roy Jones did he was never the the lineal well, light heavyweight champion uh, that's uh, yeah that that's a very valid argument because a lot of people um a lot of people would say that, you know, including a lot of historians, like people like, why is Mikulczewski on the ballot for the Hall of Fame? Look, you could say whatever you want, but I think he's actually worthy of being on that ballot, especially compared to some of his contemporaries. Of yeah, I'm era. not saying I'm going to vote for him, but he should be on the ballot. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, in, and if there's a lean year or there's not like many big names, he's one of those guys that can obviously slip in there. You know I'd kind of I mean? like to meet the Polish tiger in Canastota. <laughs> Let's get him. Yeah, he was a rugged guy, man. And, and like, can, you know, considering the era, he did have some fights that were close calls. Um, a few of them swung, you know, probably is in favoritism his way. A glaring one for sure would be his first fight with Graziano Rochigiani, who um, by all accounts knocked him clean out and some shenanigans and other stuff went on. And I think he got disqualified instead, but um, like, there, there was, you know, there was, but he was known as a tough guy. And like you said, man, at that point, the light heavyweight division was not like really getting, was not very strong. You had Virgil Hill at that point who emerged post Sphinx as like the dominant champion, but not a guy that was looking really to unify or doing anything. Um, <clears throat> the WBC title was being passed around between Dennis Andres and Jeff Harding and <clears throat> guys like that. And so at this point now, as we're moving on to like the early to mid nineties, um, Henry Maske appears and, you know, starts becoming a dominant champion in Germany as IPF champion, eventually in a surprising move, because no, no one really thought a fight like this could happen. Um, Maske and Hill end up fighting for the WBA IBF in the, one of the first unifications, I think it might've been since um, Spinks Cowie. And Hill emerged with a very, very close split decision in Germany, which a lot of people were surprised about, but that con- that solidified him as not only as being like lineal champion, but like, you know, the man. And so when, when he loses to Mikulczewski soon after that, Mikulczewski was definitely the man in that division. Like Roy Jones had the star power. Yes, he came up and he beat McCallum for the vacant belt and whatever it may be. But no, nah, man, Mikulczewski was that dude. And it's, it's even difficult to rely on technicalities because of how much bullshit the sanctioning bodies were doing at this time. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, it, it's, it just gets, it just gets confused. It gets convoluted, unfortunately. But, um, but yeah, so like this entire round Robin kind of between, you know, you have 
for the most part, Mikulczewski bumping off a number of the European light heavyweights, but then you have uh, a number of these and a couple of the American ones too, but then a lot of the American light heavyweights are kind of fighting amongst themselves and shit like that over in the US because um, Mikulczewski has a big following in Germany. He's, he's ethnically Polish, and that's why they call him the Polish Tiger, and his last name is Mikulczewski. But regardless, he has a big following in Germany, and he was really popular in Germany. He used to sell out, uh, I can't remember that hall, I'd have to look, but there was some hall that uh, he used to sell out that was like you know, 45,000, 50,000 fans or some shit. And yeah, like somewhat regularly. Uh, so anyway, it's he was he was a big force and i we've talked about that recently too with all these fighters that kind of go unnoticed or kind of under the radar despite being massive in other countries and he was one of them um but then the Roshigiani situation also complicated it because they uh, the the wbc i believe it was wound up stripping him later on i do dude this it was it was so, it was, it was so ridiculous there were so many shenanigans around this time bro and then Mikulczewski made things more complicated because he gave up the IBF title and he gave up the WBA one. So they were right. basically that. And so and, even and though so, he's a real dude, yeah, everything is just back to square one. And then that positioned American, the American press against him even more because mm-hmm. now they're like, oh, well, he only has the WBO, which doesn't matter. And he gave him up. He could have fought Roy for the Bills. Blah, blah, blah. Like, right. It and, was stupid. He, he didn't want to come to America, I, I guess, understandably. And Roy wasn't going to go to Germany, understandably, considering what happened to him in his past. But like it, it just made to a stalemate. And so every, all you would do, thank God the boxing message boards were in, it, in its infancy at that point. But like all you had was like Ring Magazine, which kind of biased, was making Roy be the number one. And oh, you know, he wants to play Mikachevsky, yada, yada, yada. But like you, you just. Yeah, uh, it, it felt as if they wanted to match up with how what they were working with pound for pound, too. Like they had oh, Roy atop the pound for pound list. So it, it wouldn't make sense for them to not have him as the light heavyweight champion which i get you know i mean just i I don't have it memorized i'm gonna go to his box rec right now but like you know he winds up picking up uh the the wbc light heavyweight for mike mccallum which you know for the wba belt which is great because mike mccallum great fighter but obviously in the twilight of his career and it was almost as if he was like you know showing mccallum respect in that fight like he didn't really you know ramp he it didn't, up yeah he never really opened up on him it was a yeah. pretty mundane decision almost so, like said, almost carrying him out of respect it, it kind of seemed that way but then he fights lou del val and gets knocked down for the first time in his career which you know was more funny than anything because you see him get knocked down and get caught with a legit shot but the first thing he gets up and he goes fuck yeah that right to the referee and then he but, goes in his corner and he starts cursing himself again he's like damn that was a good shot shit i mean and he opened up at the wrong time you know and it was just kind of uh timing wise it got him yeah, but he was wound a up guy man Delvel, he, he gave virgil hill a hell of a fight on boxing after dark before that and he was one of the guys that picked up a vacant belt that mikachevsky had given up yep. that's how he got the roy jones fight He's a very good fighter, very technical fighter, and went on to be a good trainer, too. Um, oh, a very animated one at that. <laughs> well, yeah, let's say a, a well-known trainer. A well-known yeah, trainer. yeah, there you go. Well- <laughs> a well-known trainer. But, um, you know, at that point, it, that's where it really gets complicated, because if he's now Roy Jones has unified technically the division, even though Darius Mikulczewski just did. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and then he goes from there to Reggie, 
Sweet Johnson. And that's another one that was able to pick up um, that like that was during the whole light heavyweight scrum. The IBF title went on its own little thing. So soon after, soon after um, Mikocheski gives up the IBF and WBA belts, William Guthrie, who was making a lot of moves and waves on the scene at that point, a lot of people were excited about him. Undefeated guy, um, came up in the same amateur time as Roy Jones. He took some time off because uh, I think some drug, some uh, drug offenses or something like that. But undefeated as he came back, and people were considering the next great light heavyweight and talking about a potential dream fight with Roy Jones one day. Um, wins the vacant IBF championship against Darren Allen, I believe. And then he fights um, Reggie Johnson on HBO. This was supposed to be a showcase fight for him. Reggie Johnson was a tough guy who was the former IBF middleweight champion. You know, uh, fought um, Jorge Vaca for the IBF, WBA super mid. Yeah, he's a former WBA champion, all that stuff. But like tough, tough guy, right? And very skilled, but whatever. He's But he's small for light heavyweight. He's not, you know, he's kind of been like on the back burner for a long time. So this is more of a showcase for Guthrie to be introduced to, you know, the nat- the big scene on Boxing After Dark. Instead, Reggie Johnson scored one of the biggest, one of the best knockouts of that year, man. Absolutely annihilated him with one punch. So, yeah, this was, you know, Johnson got that and was able to move himself, maneuver that into a uh, unification fight with Roy Jones. That's right, dude. And I mean, uh, Reggie Johnson was, gosh, I'm trying to think, five, no, more than that, years away from the Tony fight. And I mean, that was one of his claims to fame at the time. And he dropped James Tony earlier. Is that he dropped James Tony? It was what, like 91, 92. And this happened like 99, the unification with Roy Jones. So he was obviously years removed away from being, you know, just, I guess, more appropriate in, in terms of weight division and stuff like that. But even so, he picked up the belt. Roy Jones outboxed him somewhat easily and, and had one they had that famous highlight reel knockdown where he slaps his hand down and just pop, pop. yeah <laughs> just <laughs> yeah it just like just playing with his food type of shit yeah. you know but that was that was yet another facet of the complication of this light heavyweight era was that you had Roy Jones and he was like slapping these dudes around we talked about this recently a couple of these guys definitely did not deserve to be in there whatsoever either in terms of ranking or in terms of their quality but then you had uh, uh, Eric Harding giving Roy all sorts of shit before having to bow out on a real bad injury, tore his bicep. Uh, you know, Montel Griffin had managed to give Roy all sorts of shit. And a couple of other times, you know, a couple of other opponents had had, uh, Roy had had difficulty with a couple of other opponents. And so then again, it just made it more complicated, this whole Mikulczewski situation. However, our buddy Julio Cesar Gonzalez came in and saved the day by defeating Mikulczewski at home in a surprise split decision. And yeah, he <laughs> things started like mellowing out a little bit after that. Yeah, even you should though have seen him at the Hall of Fame, bro, he was pissed still. Someone brought up the Griffin fight and he was going on a tangent, getting very animated about how that shouldn't have been a, a DQ. You knocked him out, whatever. If you have one knee on the can, yada, yada, yada. You hit him twice while he was on his knees, bro. I mean, it's, you know, like it's, he's it's very salty it about that still. Like he's, I wasn't, he wasn't even just like joking around. Like he was pissed. He was legitimately pissed off and he's still thinking about it and gets transplanted back for that time. Roy yeah Roy is definitely one of the all-time great personalities especially of recent years that's just a just a character just a fucking character for sure but but that led to this whole thing just led to a lot of 
needless complication. Luckily, so we're kind of somewhat coming full, full, excuse me, full circle. Julio Cesar Gonzalez, uh, you know, winds up being defeated by Zolt Erde, who I remember it was it was kind of tough to to follow his career for a bit because he was just fighting whom the fuck ever for a little bit, and then he actually moved up and cruiserweight too. It pro- probably underrated, but let's not get into it. Point is, he wasn't a bad fighter, but I mean, like you said, bro, one of the one of those fighters in the European times that is, and he came on right before the era, the like the YouTube era. So unless you like follow Ring Magazine and the other publications at that time, or like you know, you can go on the websites. Like Fight News was already around at that point, well, and, the, and he was also his style was like peck peck peck. Like he was not, like he was enough, not, yeah, man, he wasn't Mister Excitement. Yeah, he was not a particularly exciting fighter for the most part, and so you know that I don't know that whole entire thing made it really complicated. But regardless, uh, being able to you know move beyond him. Thank goodness. Roy Jones, you know, Antonio Tarver, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of like went down that road until finally Bernard Hawkins winds up as the light heavyweight ruler. Um, I mean, for better or worse, mostly better, some worse. <laughs> <laughs> but, but before that, um, Tarver and Glenn Johnson got it on. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Was that unification? That was. Johnson was IBF champ. That's right. I forgot because the whole, oh my God, it was, what a mess. Holy that was a whole shit. mess who going on, yep. Holy shit. Tarver beats John. about that. Tarver you had Clinton Jones. Woods and, yeah, oh, you had Clinton Woods as IBF champion, all this stuff. So Tarver was oh, the WBC, WBA or something like that. And then, because yeah, when Roy moved up the heavyweight to challenge, to challenge Ruiz, he gave up all the belts. I forgot about that. And everything that. became a whole mess again. Well, so well, because he he said that he had all that he had planned on going back down, and I remember like there was a big push and pull about that. But then you know, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. wow, what a mess! And then Roy went and moved back down, beat Tarver for the belts that he won, lost them to Tarver again. Tarver was doing whatever, and then Glenn Johnson beat Roy soon after that, and that's when he got. Then they ended up getting together. What a massive mess, dude! Wowzers! Yeah, yeah I, would, I don't even know how that could slip my mind because I was. At I mean, because it's fight. easy, too, man. That was a whole mess in itself. The mid two thousands. Yeah, I was at that fight, like, so I don't yeah. know why I didn't remember that, but I was at that fucking fight. But yeah, that well, I remember. I was rooting for. I was rooting for Glenn Johnson, dude. I think just about everybody. Everybody was, was man, and he won that fight legitimately. It was a good fight, but Johnson won it, and I love yeah. this comment at the end. I'm not the best. I just want to fight the best. Yeah, you know, like I'm just looking for Mr. Best. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah I'm not the best. I'm just looking for Mr. Best. Everyone was just like, "Well, that is the most endearing comment everybody's it anybody's is. ever made." And when wow. I saw him one year, one year at the Hall of Fame, I want to say when Kalzaki got inducted, so that was like 2014 or so. They're on stage together. Johnson wasn't getting inducted; he was just a guest. And they're sitting right next to each other. And I overhear them talking. And Glenn Johnson's going. He was like, "Joe." Joe, man, he was like, listen, you're the one guy I never fought. We were supposed to get an honor. We never did. He was like, give me that. He was like, give me the honor, man. Come back and fight me. He was like, give me that honor. He was like, I fought you all. And Joe was like, oh, man, you crazy? No, I'm done. <laughs> you mean, I'm getting inducted over He's here. He's like, dude, I'm not doing that again. Get out of yeah. here. He was like, I'm retired. I'm about to get inducted in the Hall of Fame, man. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. But Joe, think about it, man. Okay, thanks. <laughs> oh, Glenn. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah well dude, that was that was a whole thing but like you said man hopkins finally kind of cleared it up yeah i think i mean i i had come i had completely forgotten that uh glenn johnson had gotten the ibf title but that's right that's true so bernard hopkins winds up defeating antonio tarver and then from there you know just kind of the it, things come back into place kind of but Bebut Shumanov, I mean, oh, oh my God, dude, the, the needless <laughs> complication. How does this even, where are we getting this from? Bebut Shumanov, what? Remember I'm, when he came on the scene out of nowhere? Like, no, he was mysterious. No one knew really much about him. Gabe Campillo, right? Wasn't Campillo? They got, they got in that fight and somehow like emerged with a decision. And but yeah, they, they fought twice, I think. And the first fight was really good. And then the mm-hmm. second fight, you know, whatever. But it was like, that was such a... I, uh, this is he like making my head for saying he didn't have a trainer really like he actually didn't have a trainer at all he just trained himself yeah just the complications here are making my head spin but you know <laughs> they they wound up doing their own little thing for the wba title and babut shumanoff wound up with somehow the wba tie who knows how and then so bernard hopkins unifies with uh babut shumanoff in 2014 which was like, you know, whatever. I don't even know how that wound up being a split decision because that was just like a shit fest. The last handful of his fights were shit fest, bro. The Carl Murat fight was so... Oh, it's like one of my all-time least favorite fights. So you get to see Steve Smoger literally beating up one of the fighters because he doesn't like what he's doing, slapping him and shit. Like, that was so bizarre, dude. This entire, you know, Tavoris Cloud, this entire, like... And entire... there was like a whole other thing going on too. Like, guys were giving up belts again. Tomas yeah. uh, Adamek came on the scene for a briefly before he moved up the heavyweight. Um, Chad Dawson emerged. Um, John Pascal was coming on at that time. Danny Green, Paul Briggs. Danny Green. Like, yeah. yeah, like there was just this string of like, it's yeah. <laughs> so much confusion. Yeah. So with Bernard Hopkins, I guess, you know, thankfully in, in well, whatever, uh, defeating Babut Shumanov, he brought it all together, but then Sergey Kovalev took it all away later that year certainly did and you you know hawkins again man it was tough for him because like he when he he first he beat um tarver and then like he had a couple of like fights where yes he's like on on ring magazine light heavyweight champion for doing that so that kind of supersedes all the you know belt confusion but from there um he fights jean pascal soon after that pascal had become wbc champion beats him um, then he fights Chad Dawson in a really strange and two fight series that I'd rather never talk about again. Yeah, I was at and that I first was... one. Wish I wasn't. I was at the second one. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, but soon after that, like you said, man, after uh, after the Dawson fights, and you think that like uh, Hopkins might like ride off to the sunset, he comes, he emerges again. He beats Tavares Cloud, who was a, a light heavyweight champion around that time. And then, like you said, he fights Shumanov. But um, at that point, Sergey Kovalev was, you know, emerging as an absolute wrecking machine. And um, even though Hopkins was still being considered the, uh, you know, the recognized champion of the division, like, you know, the man who beat the man who beat the man, he wasn't at that point considered the best fighter of that division. It was either between Adonis Stevenson or Sergey Kovalev, and most people would have considered Kovalev to be that dude. And no, um, it's just like how many layers of dumbness can we get here, bro? Yeah, <laughs> you know, because um, at one point it looked like Kovalev and Stevenson were going to fight, and then we've discussed that. That was a whole other stupid mess in itself, one reasons why that never happened. So, 
next best thing for Kovalev is to fight Hopkins. And Hopkins at that time, which was, this was a big deal because if you remember, Hopkins was aligned with um, Showtime and like PVC and that whole, well, Golden Boy, mostly Showtime and Golden Boy. And because PVC wasn't a thing yet, I don't think really. But like Showtime and Golden Boy, like all that stuff, he was aligned with that. So I remember, I forgot what happened, but he realized something. He broke away from all of it, right? And he was like, I'm doing my own thing. And he was like, I'm going back to, you know, to, to HBO to challenge or something to, to fight Kovalev. Because that fight wasn't even like going to be on the table, but he ended up doing something where it happened. So, you know, he went the distance, you know, he tried, but he, he, got, he lost a wide, wide decision. And he wasn't really competitive. Yeah, it, Kovalev just beat him up. And I mean, dude. Up early, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was just a... Uh this entire string here is just like, there's so many holes to fill dude going from when Hopkins defeated Tarver. And then immediately after that, uh, quote unquote, you know, making a defense against winky, Wright At a mm-hmm. catch weight and then getting defeated by Joe Calzage, but then fighting Kelly Pavlik at a catch weight. And I mean, it was like, it was just and that so was the thing, man. All these dudes were starting to do catch weight fights at this point, because that's not becoming the new fad. Yeah. It was, it was just ick dude. Ick. The entire thing it's is there's no straight line that's what makes it kind of frustrating is that there's not much clarity and so like you if know, winky Wright had beat hopkins what would have happened at that point you think winky Wright would have been a light heavyweight no i i will tell you that there were people and are people now who believe winky beat hopkins that night i was there there were i don't how many how many fucking of these fights were I at? Holy shit. I was at that fight. I covered that. You're fight. making the rounds in the early. Yeah. Time. Damn. All right. We're getting nice name drops here for me today, but yeah, dude, uh, a That's lot not of people, a fight. I'm trying to revisit to find no, out. No, I'm not going to go rewatch it, but there were people ringside who were like winky. And I was like, what? Really? Really? Okay. Whatever. Fine. But anyway, yeah, there's no straight line here. That's what makes this kind of just, dumb and so it's almost like you have to put an asterisk about this whole light heavyweight unification episode because the sanctioning bodies have screwed around so much that's what makes them unifications they're not like legit yeah but they like they make them big enough fights that they're notable for what they were for that time absolutely for sure well and and uh hopkins shumanoff is actually among the most recent of the light heavyweight unifications because at this point now i'm trying to think off the top of my head do you have anything else no I, I can't think of anything else that's, you know, apart from like, well, no, besides, kind of minor from, besides, um, uh, better be of, um, Vosdik. Yeah. Well, and in, in, in like I, we were talking about now, you're entering a whole new layer of, uh, some of the sanctioning bodies having multiple champions. So it's kind of like, I mean, exactly, exactly. Do you even was, count them? You know, the whole Stevenson, um, Stevenson Kovalev mess. I wanted that so bad, bro. Like I was working their fights at that point. I was at um I was in Quebec City when Stevenson knocked out Tony Bellew and um Kovalev destroyed um Salak. Ismail Salak. Just Salak collapsed in front of me. I was ringside uh, Salak's head just landed in the corner right next to me. I just kind of looked up and my eyes just bugged out of its head like Jesus, you know. Because his head literally, bro, it looked like there was a thousand evil, evil Knievels just driving around there going crazy. Like, head was spinning around, eyes were going like eight balls, like, gone. Yeah, dude. And I, he, thought, and I thought Salak was going to win that fight. So He, he was producer, a good amateur. He had good pedigree, and he just got run through. And I told people, like, the day before the fight, I was like, oh, yeah, I think he might beat him, blah, blah, blah. And then one of the producers on the truck, he goes, nice call, Aris. And you hear everybody else in the back, and all the production people start laughing. <laughs> 
It's actually, you know, it's pretty wild, dude, with a, a division with this much history behind it, you know, going back, back, back in over 100 years. Uh, it's wild that there are so few unifications that we're having to like talk about the other parts of these fighters careers. But that's just how it goes. And in a way, like I said, in a way, that's good, because that means that there were at least in the earlier years, fewer unifications to do. Just in recent years, there's been so many so many titles going in different directions that it makes it you know just needlessly complicated but dude always a fun time talking about the history of whatever aspect of boxing we're choosing at the time you know this was a blast as always man it's gonna be a good fight this weekend like i said uh unification fight so it adds to the history of this division and that's why we're here to cover it let's hope the history marches forward and we get more clarity moving forward because we don't need more titles we need fewer we need one champion. That's it. And appreciate it, dude. Thanks so much, man. Always a pleasure. Everybody, thank you so much. If you listened in on the podcast, please do subscribe, give us a rating, leave a comment. Those things are appreciated. If you watched on YouTube, also subscribe, leave comments, dude. You know, ask questions. We love that stuff. We'll interact. We'll do what we can. But we are also on social media. Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter for that matter. But we're also on Twitter individually my dude eris here is on twitter as punch zone eris me patrick connor i'm there as patrick m connor and hopefully we'll talk to you there eris we'll talk soon bro have a good one hey everybody With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Asante came to TurboTax after graduating from culinary school and landing a job in the hottest kitchen in town. My hands are full all day, every day. I love it. Asante, as your TurboTax expert, I'll make your moves count. Guaranteeing 100% accurate filing and your maximum refund. Sound good? Yes, expert! Switch to Intuit TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live.